and welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. I'm Dr. Rita McCracken. And I'm David Ball. This is the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use, about substance use care and treatment. Addiction Practice Pod is produced on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In saying this, we note that the ongoing criminalization, discrimination, and institutionalization against people who use drugs disproportionately harms Indigenous peoples. Ending drug-related harms means addressing racism and colonialism. I'm a family doctor in East Vancouver and a primary care researcher at the University of British Columbia. Hi, Rita. It's great to be here with you. I'm a journalist and have reported for a decade about substance use, public health policies, and mental health. As return listeners already know, this is a podcast for healthcare providers. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. For today's episode, we're talking about pain. Many people with opioid use disorder, or OUD, are also living with chronic pain. And studies suggest that between 36 and 68% of people on opioid agonist treatment for OUD also have chronic pain. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Mike Butterfield about co-occurring pain and opioid use disorder. Dr. Butterfield is a psychiatrist and pain medicine specialist. We'll also hear from Dwayne Patmore. Dwayne is a veteran and has experiences of both chronic pain and opioid addiction. Welcome Dr. Michael Butterfield to our chat today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. To start out with, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about you and your work. What's your main area of practice? My main area of practice is in pain medicine. I'm originally trained as a psychiatrist for my primary specialty, and then I did a two-year subspecialty residency program in pain medicine. So about 80% of my time is spent uh, pain medicine, and then the other 20% is in uh, general psychiatry. Now, this is a podcast about substance use, and I feel like pain is a pretty key part of the puzzle when we talk about especially chronic opioid use. Can you talk a little bit about the links between chronic opioid use and how it influences the experience of pain and any other linkages? I think you bring up a really good point. So there is a very strong connection between chronic substance use, both alcohol use, opioid use, stimulant use, and even nicotine use and impact on chronic pain. The thing that we know the most about, I think, at this point in time is the effect of chronic opioid use on chronic pain. And so what we do know is that from exposure to chronic opioids, whether that's from a prescribed source or an illicit source, we know that that changes the way our body uh, reacts to pain. So it actually amplifies those pain signals and we end up perceiving pain uh, more acutely and more severely if we're exposed to opioids for a long period of time. This is called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and it's a very uh, common thing that happens to many people that are on opioids, and it doesn't actually even need to be high-dose opioids or for even prolonged periods of time, but it seems to be more prominent for people that are on uh, higher doses and for long periods of time. And so people just start to experience pain more easily, whether that's you know even light pressure on their skin can feel very uncomfortable or very painful. Any procedures that they get, even blood work taken, can be extremely painful for them. Whereas if they weren't taking opioids for long periods of time, they wouldn't feel these experiences as as acutely or as severely. So one of the things that I've uh, uncovered in some of my work that I've been doing around treating acute and chronic pain in opioid naive people is that 
the best that we usually see in randomized controlled trials is that the relief that people get from opioid medication is usually only one point on the 10 point scale. So if their regular pain is a seven out of 10, if we prescribe opioids and they work, it only goes to a six out of 10. And I wonder if you can talk about what we know or what you've seen in your practice about the impact of opioid prescribing for people who have an opioid use disorder when they are experiencing acute or chronic pain. So unfortunately, when people have an opioid use disorder, and most of them, or hopefully most of them are on some type of treatment for that, which would include methadone or uh, buprenorphine or something else for treatment of that, they do have such a high tolerance. So trying to treat that acute pain or worsening of a chronic pain issue can be quite challenging. And their tolerance is really quite high. What that usually means is you need much higher doses of the acute opioid they're going to be using to treat their pain, or which is actually preference or which we prefer to do is to use the opioid treatment that they're already on, whether that's sort of methadone or whether that's buprenorphine, and just use that medication in a different way, splitting up the dose throughout the day to usually three times a day to get better pain control and or using as needed or PRN doses of those same medications to try and treat those acute pain flares or worsening of their chronic pain issues. That's really interesting. I think for a lot of frontline health workers, people who are prescribers, there's a big nervousness or thorny issue around, you know, hearing so much about the opioid crisis and prescribing and then the patient's experience of, of needing help for pain. Could you talk about that a bit? That is one of the major challenges at this point in time. So we know that there's been a significant increase in opioid-related deaths, and uh, there's a lot of fear around opioid prescribing. And I feel like the pendulum has swung significantly to one way where people feel very, very fearful of uh, prescribing opioids. But that does leave these patients in this position where they can't get the type of treatment that you know, is required for their acute pain issues. It's very challenging. It's a very challenging minefield for both healthcare professionals to try and navigate and also for patients to try and get the care that they need. It's our hope that with further education and there's a bunch of different education scenarios or education opportunities that physicians and healthcare workers can access, echo programs for chronic pain, where they can get feedback from pain specialists on different cases. What I generally tend to do or recommend is that these patients do require that type of care and they do require treatment for their pain. And what I often say is that it can, you can give these medications to people um, that do suffer from opioid use disorder because they still do require that amount of care, but just the care around that needs to be a little bit more restricted or it needs to be a little bit more supportive. Actually, restricted is probably not the right way, more supportive in that it really needs to be more collaborative with their outpatient care providers or their family doctors, with their pharmacists to make sure that, that any risk associated with that prescribing is as minimal as possible. Yeah, that's related to this really important concept about what clinicians who faithfully attend their CME and listen to the letters from the college, their expectations about prescribing for pain and patients' expectations about prescribing for pain. What tips do you have about how to walk that line and have those conversations in a really meaningful and respectful way with patients? 
I think the best way to approach those subjects are definitely non-judgmental and compassionate. I think that those are sort of the key features that I always try to embody or I always try to relate to anyone that I'm talking to about caring for patients that do have a comorbid opioid use disorder and pain and that there really needs to be an understanding of where they're coming from and to meet with them on their level. I often use a motivational interviewing approach, which is a very standardized type of approach that's really works with patients to develop a collaborative goal setting and to use different types of techniques like reflective listening, summarizing, open-ended questions to really get on the same page as the patient and to work with them collaboratively to come up with goals. Can we talk a little bit about non-medication-based treatments or pathways that exist, you know, for chronic pain and opioid use disorders? Is that something, what's, how's, where's that conversation right now? That is something that I'm very passionate about. So the non-medication part of pain management is probably 70% of what we do. The medication piece is really a small portion of it. And so there's many different ways in which you can try and access these different resources. So we always think of pain management in maybe like five main categories, one of them being pharmacological, one of them being procedural, like injections, things like that. The one of them being preventative, so preventing any further pain. And then the other two main core features that sort of that brings to mind is the psychotherapeutic and physical therapies. Right now, the or maybe a silver lining of COVID has that there's been a lot of like online resources that have been uh, produced and available. And so some of these are mainly focused on getting people moving, getting people active, trying to decrease that pain sensitivity by desensitization through physical activity. And so there's self-management BC has an online virtual program for chronic pain, which is excellent. Any patients that enroll in it or individuals that enroll in it gets tons of really great resources, books, CDs, and the teaching is excellent around that. And there's other programs that are run by occupational therapists, physiotherapists through different tertiary pain programs. There's a number of in Vancouver. There's also some in the interior and in Northern health and also on the island. And these programs, again, really help people get motivated, get moving, and also work on the psychotherapeutic piece. So really giving people more education around pain science, why people feel chronic pain when there's actually no trauma happening to their body, how this pain pathway has gone sort of haywire, gone out of control and how di learning different resources to dampen that down, whether that be mindfulness exercises, whether that be cognitive and behavioral therapy, whether that be other types of psychotherapy, interpersonal therapy to really sort of decrease the sensitization of that pathway and really actually to engage people to uh, improve their function. So I'm in my thinking with my family doctor hat on right now. And um, we do find that access to those resources can be really problematic, especially for patients who are experiencing the structural aspects of marginalization, racism, poverty, that kind of thing. It's, it's great to have an online fitness class, but if you don't have a device that can connect to the internet and reliable internet, it's tough to do. So I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about that. Yeah, I definitely think that that is a huge issue. And one of the things that actually has been very uh, helpful, and I've been lucky to be involved at least peripherally, is the Pain BC program has started, it was initially uh, described as a low barrier pain self-management program, which started in the downtown east side specifically for that reason, is that, you know, 
patients that are marginalized or uh, vulnerable really don't have access to those things. And so how do we create a space and create programs that help them to gain access to these resources, this education that is really low barrier? And they've been able to run the program, I think now for two years. And we've been working really hard to expand that into different communities you know, across BC. I think that big challenge is the geographical constraints and funding for that. But we've really had a lot of uptake on that. And there's been um, some growth in there. That's where we've really been working hard to solve that issue. Though, obviously, it's a work in progress. It's something that we really hope that people will continue to engage and that our program will grow. So are there any key points or pieces of advice that you'd like to give uh, clinicians working with patients who have an opioid use disorder and are experiencing pain? I think the main words of advice would be really to connect with those patients and meet them where they're at, and also to work on the non-pharmacological and non-opioid pain management strategies as much as they can to try and improve these individuals' overall function in their life. I think that oftentimes we focus so much on the biological or like the pharmacological treatment pieces, but that's such a small part in overall pain management. And I think that being able to work with someone just on even goal settings on what's their goal for this week in terms of their overall function, how do we improve your physical capacity level? Is there any type of relaxation training or any relaxation exercise that we could do together in our office today that you can take with you and do that when you feel like your pain is starting to worsen? I think those types of interventions pay off tenfold and have no side effects associated with them. You don't run into problems with increased tolerance for the opioids and is much safer overall for those, for those patients and individuals. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Butterfield. It's great to speak with you and hear your passion for this. Right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with me today and uh, allowing me to speak on, uh, on this topic. Dr. Butterfield is a psychiatrist and pain medicine specialist. He's also the director of UBC's Pain Medicine Residency Program. Finally today, we're going to be hearing from Dwayne Patmore. Dwayne's a veteran with over 30 years of service who found himself struggling with drugs and alcohol after a serious injury. We wanted to hear from someone with personal experience of both chronic pain and opioid use. My journey started in 1992. I was a physician assistant working at the base hospital in Chilliwack. And I was going out the back door. I was the duty, what they call medical officer at that time. So I'd come in to do a suture job on an individual and that, and I was on my way home. And somebody had put something on the rear deck, uh, which left grease or something like that. And I slipped on that, landed on my back, and then went right off the dock and ended up about four feet down below. And then I felt, oh, well, I just strained my back at the time. It's no big deal. I thought, you know, a couple days rest and I'd be good to go. But it was very difficult to get into my car and get out of my car. So I ended up uh, going to physio. And when I went into physio, they put me in traction. And when she put me in traction, she hadn't been at it probably more than 30 seconds when all of a sudden a big snap happened in my back. And uh, 
I ended up not being able to feel both legs entirely and I was in instant pain. I come up off that table, boy, I'll die, and then they hit the deck and it was just terrible, terrible, terrible. Never felt anything like that before. And so I went to see the military physician at the base and they tried to treat me conservatively initially, which was, of course, with drugs. My time in the military, it was if you were injured or if you were ill for an extended period of time, you were released from the military. You could be injured up to six months and get a further six months to be treated. But at the end of that year, if you couldn't do the job because of an injury or an illness, you were then released on medical grounds. And uh, unfortunately, that's one of the first things I learned in, in the military in my 38 years of experience as a physician assistant was to hide your symptoms. But at that time as well, they didn't have a program set up like they do now with the pharmacies and stuff like that so that they could see what medications you were on. So I could go to one doctor and get some uh, drugs, some narcotics and that to treat the back pain. And then if I overused them, then I could go to another doctor and get another prescription. We had five doctors I could work with to get the medications. Initially, I was able to manage fine with the, with the, uh, the uh, medications that they prescribed to me. But it wasn't long uh, after that that I had to go for the surgery on my back. And that was super intense. That was just devastating. And especially when you're a young military individual and you're used to doing combat training and carrying rucksacks and stuff like that, I, I couldn't do anything like that anymore. So I started taking the medication and, and it wasn't long, probably about six months after that, that uh, it was becoming more and more. And they were not only the narcotics, but they were giving me benzodiazepines as well to re relax the muscles and that. And though in my mind, I thought I was okay, my wife would, would tell you that it looked like I was drunk, you know, and my speech was affected, my mannerisms. But I became, a, if you will, kind of a sneaky addict with the medication in the, in the aspect that I couldn't function at home, but I made sure I was able to function at work. So I would go in and I would put up with what I had to do for the day. And the funny part of it is that it, one of the sad things is, in my mind, I thought it was no problem using the medication as I seen fit, because in my mind, it was a legal drug. <laughs> when the medication and the narcotics wasn't, wasn't doing the trick anymore, then I also started drinking alcohol on top of that. So that would become a three or a four day bender at night so that I could get, and it, basically I would try to drink to oblivion so I couldn't feel anything. And uh, that went on successfully probably for about seven years that I was able to manage to carry on. My family life suffered though greatly. My relationship was affected by the end of the seven years to the point that my wife was willing to, uh, not willing to, she was going to leave and take the kids with her. We have six children and that. She made her mind up and then as for the military, it was starting to catch up with me there too because my cognitive function was starting to be affected greatly at work and I, I couldn't honestly treat patients when I was having a hard time looking after myself. I'd actually tried 
to attend a military drug and alcohol program, but it was a 30-day program. And that 30-day, you just, you, you knew your end date and you did your time and away you went. I stayed sober for a period of time after that, but it wasn't long that the pain got the better of me again and I relapsed. And I didn't really have the skill sets to move on uh, from at that point with managing my pain. So in 2001, I had uh, another injury to my back. We were setting up an examining room to do medicals at the recruiting center in Vancouver. We had some med- some equipment on the, on the rear dock again. I, I guess I should have learned to stay away from rear docks, but they hit an examining table with a piece of kit up top and I was down below and it came down and as it was coming down I was able to put up my hands but obviously the weight of it just crushed me and I immediately uh, felt my back go again and that and I went oh my my words and I, I had a choice to make either I went one way and the family was gone and the job was gone and I stuck to the drugs or the alcohol or I went to treatment and I, I chose to go to treatment. So I went into the treatment program at Edgewood. It was a program where there was no end date. You could be there for three months. You could be there for six months. You could be there for a year. It all depended on, on your progress. Through them, I was able to look at drugs and alcohol in a different light. Even though you've been treated, though, I always like to say when the first six months of my recovery after treatment, I had more hangovers than when I drugged and I drank. They have a family days there where the the family member tells you how your drinking or drugging has affected you, etc. And they phoned my wife up and she said, tell them to go to hell. I'm not going to even participate in family days. As soon as he gets back, I'm gone. I think over the course of that seven times, you know, you always promise your wife you'll quit drinking, you'll quit drugging and that you make all these promises that you can't keep. And I would always look for an excuse to relapse so I could take away the pain again. She had no faith in the fact that uh, I, I was going to uh, be able to recover and rightfully so. But when I came home, I, I told her the one thing that made a difference for me this time uh, was that she could leave if she saw fit, if she needed to. I was in the treatment program for me and not for her. Before, I was always doing it for her, but this time it was for me and I had a better understanding of what I had to do, uh, when I had to do it, and uh, in order to stay clean and sober. She ended up staying, and now that was 20 and a half years ago, and we've now been married 47 years. And so the other uh, aspect that helped me at that time, and I, I kind of put this as my higher power uh, looking out for me too, is my grandson, Chance, was born uh, in 95 with spina bifida. And once I started, uh, got clean and sober, he ended up coming to live with us because his mother and his father couldn't provide him the care that he required. And as a physician assistant with some background, I was able to provide for him. That turned out to be probably the best thing that ever could have happened to me because it gave me somebody else to focus and it gave me somebody else to love who would love me back just for what I was doing and not who I was and stuff like that in the past. Basically what happened is I, I 
ended up uh, with a physician in Chilliwack who I knew who had been in the military. And he knew that I had suffered from drug and alcohol misuse when I was in the military and that. And he was willing to take me on as a patient and my grandson on as a patient. We started a program which made all the difference in the world for me. It's, we call it helping hands. So it consists of my physician, it consists of a physiotherapist, it consists of my psychologist, and it consists of me. I'm an important part of that plane as well. That is what made a difference for me. So what I have learned to do over the last number of years is manage my pain and not let my pain manage me. So I don't let it keep me in bed anymore. Movement is, is an important aspect of that program and mindfulness is an important aspect of that program. And what was really good was that the psychologist came to my home and talked to my wife and my grandson and explained to them, you know, my history when I was drinking and drugging and what was going on. And the fact that it wasn't that I didn't care, but that I didn't know how to care and why things were the way they were. And boy, I'll tell you, that was like somebody threw the light bulb on for my wife. And it's amazing that we have now in the last three years developed such a close relationship. I also found through my psychologist and my physician, my physician sent me to Payne, BC. And why he sent me to Payne, BC is because he thought with my history, I might be able to help somebody else in their journey with pain. And so I ended up applying to Paint PC and I became a facilitator. What I would say to somebody who is uh, suffering from chronic pain and, and using opioids or other substances in order to deal with their pain, basically all you're doing when you do that, I found, is you're masking your pain. So you're taking it away for that small period of time when you're stoned or you're drunk or you're out of it and stuff like that but you still have to come back to it after that. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So you have to make a decision for yourself whether you're gonna live in that cycle of drug misuse and alcohol misuse and misery, because living like that is misery. It's uh, not a life that I would recommend for anybody, but to learn to uh, manage your pain, as I said, instead of it managing you. My pain managed my whole life from the time that I had those injuries and that in the aspect that when I started hurting that meant I had to take a substance and it comes to the point eventually where you're cognitively affected, you're emotionally affected, you're physically affected and you have no life. It's you're, you're living a life of despair. You have to be willing to work to get better. And I, I have to tell you, it, it's well worth it. Now with my recovery, I have a good home, I have a good family, and I got 13 grandchildren. I can enjoy my grandkids, but they all know, they've all been trained coming up as they got older, not to jump on me or not to grab me or stuff like that. So you have to set your limitations and boundaries and that, and let people know what they are and then they'll work with you to move forward.
We've heard from important voices today on co-occurring pain and opioid use disorder and some really, really important perspectives. Rita, I'm wondering, what are some of the clinical pearls that stand out for you? The thing I think is the most important is that knowing your patient and the longitudinal relationship you have is a gift that is going to help you serve your patients who have OUD when they are experiencing pain, either their chronic pain that they've been with for a while or new acute pain. Being able to listen carefully, develop an accurate diagnosis for the pain or why the pain has transitioned, and then being able to try things in that trusting relationship that you have where you can have close follow-up and use the magic of primary care. Additionally, uh, not all pain is the same. For patients who are taking OAT, understanding that the duration of pain relief that OAT provides can help determine if their pain is opioid resistant or not. And Dr. Butterfield, he made a very specific suggestion about, for example, when somebody who is being prescribed OAT is experiencing pain, you could even play around with the dosing of their current dose. So for example, instead of methadone being delivered once a day, what happens if you split that into two doses? And so I think that speaks to just how unique a pain experience can be for a person. And you need to recognize that when you are creating your treatment plan. Opioid agonist treatments are appropriate for co-occurring chronic pain and OUD. There are non-pharmacological options that can be helpful for patients. And again, Dr. Butterfield gave us a great uh, description of those in his five-point plan. And those include things like supportive listening or counseling, which is something that pretty much every clinician, no matter where they work, can be doing in any patient encounter, as well as more expert types of counseling and physical therapies that may be available through a typical physical therapist or a program that is offered, for example, through Pain BC. One of the things that is really important to attend to, ask some good questions about is quality of sleep and whether there is significant sleep disruption related to the pain. And again, taking both that pharmacological and non-pharmacological approach, just things like basic sleep hygiene components, like how much screen time are you having as you're trying to fall asleep? Is your room where you are sleeping comfortable enough for you? And what changes could you make to that? As well as potentially adding a non-sedative sleep aid uh, that could be helping just to reduce that extra element, because we know that sleep disruption can actually increase people's experience of pain. We really wanted to thank our guests for their time today, Dwayne Patmore and Dr. Mike Butterfield. And Rita, it was a real pleasure to co-host this episode with you. Likewise, David. And to our listeners, you can find links to the studies we mentioned during the show in our show notes. You can also help us create the best possible podcast by filling out the short survey linked in our show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This program was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada and Doctors of BC. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use with the support of Cited Media. I'm Dr. Rita McCracken. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Addiction Practice Pod, coming soon.